0: Here's another listener. Essay. essay. <laughs> this is Infants on
1: Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> listener, essay. listener essay. Listener Listener. listener essay.
0: Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland and this is the back half of our May 2018 Listener Essay Contest. Five more essays for you each day this week, starting with today's essay, which is number nine in our contest, and is titled, Believing Jack Mormon, and written by Brian. Now, I wanna quickly say a special thank you to all of you who have submitted essays this past week and sent emails about the songwriting contest. Now, there will be a songwriting contest in July, And another listener essay contest in August to fit in the ones that were recently submitted and just won't fit into this current contest. But no worries, we'll just do another listener essay contest and we'll keep doing them as long as you listeners have things that you want to say. So please keep sending in your submissions, they're great. But you know what else would be great? Not very many of you have been going to the website to fill out the little voting surveys for each of these listener essays, and I'd like to see more of those. And so would Jesus. And I'm sure so would our authors. They'd like to get more feedback on the essays that they wrote and recorded and submitted for this contest. So please remember to go to the website, infantsonthrones.com, find the post for today's essay, and spend a couple of minutes casting your vote and providing some feedback. It's easier than home teaching, visiting teaching, ministering, or whatever the hell they're calling it now. So please give feedback, because if you don't, you're lame. And that's exactly what the devil wants you to be. And why would anyone want to make the devil happy? He's bad. He's bad. The devil is bad. Do you want to be bad too? Or do you want to be good? Like today's author, Brian, who wrote Believing Jack Mormon. So take it away, Brian, and stop making the devil be happy.
1: I believe in Jack Mormon. Until very recently, I believed in Mormonism, even though I've never been an active member as an adult. This is the story of a believing Jack Mormon, and there are more of us out there than you'd think. Growing up. I grew up in a small town in Utah, obviously Mormon. It was all I knew. I never questioned it. I never thought to question it. And until high school I was a good Mormon. I think we called it churchy. In junior high I was a bit socially awkward, so I did what any- anyone would do in that situation. I started going to parties with alcohol. The parties were fun, the Mormon guilt not so much. But at least I wasn't one of those churchy kids anymore. Then I masturbated. Not at one of the parties, I mean I was by myself. I think I was watching Porky's. Hello Mormon guilt. Maybe it's different now, but back in the 80s, at least the way I was taught, this was a big deal. Shortly after that, my mom gave me a very special book, The Miracle of Forgiveness. She probably gave it to me because I'd been staying out past curfew on the weekends and she was worried about some of the people I was hanging out with. I felt pretty bad before I read the book, but oh man, that book is a crime. It was written by the then prophet, at the time, Spencer W. Kimball. So I thought that everything in it was basically the word of God what was God saying? That I was going to hell and that I had no hope. This book lays it all out. You must follow thousands of rules to the letter, and if you stray even slightly, you must confess everything to your bishop. Even after you confess, if you ever mess up again, then it cancels out the supposed forgiveness of your past sin. It explained that even drinking coffee was a big sin, and alcohol was even worse. Sex outside of marriage was described in a chapter heading as, The Sin Next to Murder and masturbation is the sin next to that. Oh, and it just might turn you gay. The book said all of this. I still have this book. My off-the-charts guilt and shame got even worse, but I still wanted to be the perfect person from the perfect religion that my mother used to believe I was, so I actually confessed to my bishop. It was humiliating. I did feel a bit better after my confession, but after a few months later, I masturbated again. What am I going to do? It's right there in my pants. I felt so terrible. What was wrong with me? Not only was I a sinful, sick, sexual pervert, but I was a hypocrite as well. Shamed and desperate, I confessed once again. I didn't feel much better this time. I was worried I couldn't trust myself. And you guessed it, I did it again. Well, that was it. I wasn't telling that old guy about how I touched myself again. I guess I chose a future of hell, than the hell of confessing again. I was still, quote, living in sin when my father asked me to baptize my youngest brother. I didn't really want to and protested as much as I dared. I obviously couldn't tell him the actual reason why I didn't want to do it. So I ended up doing it and I felt guilty about that also. I still believed in the church and I thought my brother's baptism might not even count because it because I wasn't worthy enough to perform it. I went to college, and as my 19th birthday approached, the subject of a mission came. I was still going to church, and to all outward appearances, I was a good Mormon. Then I got drunk at a gay bar. Well, I'm not gay, but in high school and college, I was a dancer, so I had a lot of gay friends. Gay people didn't scare me. I thought they were fascinating. Well, that night, I was way too drunk to drive home, so I stayed the night at my friend's. This friend, who is gay and sounds gay, called my house to tell my parents I was too drunk to come home. The next morning I almost didn't go home. But what choice did I have? Well that look on my mom's face when I walked in the door was unbearable. She must have aged 10 years that night. Running away. The tension with my parents only worsened, especially as my 19th birthday came and went. Although I still believed in the church, the guilt I experienced while attending just got to be too much. The tension with my parents got so bad that I moved out with my girlfriend. I didn't tell them that I moved in with my girlfriend, but they found out. My father followed me home from work one night to find out where I lived, and when he saw my girlfriend's car there that night and still there the next morning, he knew we were living together. Then Mom and Dad came over, unexpectedly, and asked me why I didn't tell them I was moving in with my girlfriend. Well, that was about the dumbest question I ever heard. After all my disappointments, I just didn't want to disappoint them again. My t- parents told me I needed to get married because, obviously, sex outside of marriage is a sin next to murder. So at 19 years old, I got married. Now I wasn't living in sin and I could have some peace, right? Nope. Is 19 a good time to get married? No. Is desperately running away from guilt and shame-based religion a good way to start a relationship? No. <laughs> I was all twisted up inside. And not a nice person. So within four months, my wife left me. Well, somehow with the help of my mother-in-law, my wife and I did get back together. Back to church. By this time, I thought I had shaken the Mormon guilt and the Mormon belief, but it still lurked inside me. After a few years, my younger brother went on a mission, inspired by, especially for youth, youth, and my wife and I had a baby daughter. These two things motivated me to go back to church. I went alone. My wife has never been a Mormon. She and my daughter went with me only one time. It wasn't fun going alone, and I didn't even last a year. We had a son, and after a few years, my parents asked if they could take our two younger children to church with them. We we agreed to that, thinking it wouldn't hurt for them to learn a few good morals and spend some quality time with their grandparents. Before I knew it, my daughter was 8 years old, and people were talking to her about baptism. I didn't know what to think, but I was sure feeling guilty about the fact that I couldn't be the one to baptize her. Somewhere deep inside, I must have still believed. One Sunday afternoon at my parents' house, someone from the ward had a talk with my daughter about baptism. He said the most insensitive thing. He asked if her parents read the scriptures with her. This man was a friend of my parents, and he knew the whole situation. He knew that my kids went to church with their grandparents, and that my wife and I didn't attend church. How could he have not known... That people who don't go to church don't read scriptures to their children. The question was shaming and completely out of bounds. That was the end of church for the kids. A Reckoning We continued with our happy life, ignoring religion altogether for the most part. The kids got older and we had another son. Throughout this time, the question of God and religion continued to nag at my subconscious. I decided to finally confront that which I was implicitly rejecting. If I were to reject it, I would reject it openly and for good reasons. So I read the Book of Mormon. Interestingly, I stopped reading before I got to Moroni's promise. I think I was afraid of the answer and therefore afraid to ask the question. Uh, Well, all I can say about the Book of Mormon is that it is absolutely bat crap crazy. The stories didn't make sense. The morals were inconsistent, it was more fantasy than anything resembling reality. The repetition was very annoying. The Word of God? The most perfect book? It couldn't possibly be. But even after that, my inner Mormon didn't reject it. The mysteries of God, I suppose. Then I read through most of the Old Testament and found parts of it almost as crazy as the Book of Mormon. Around this time, I happened upon Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It was a great book. It described a very different religion from Mormonism. I remember how distinctly, uh, I remember most dis- his definition of faith. He said that faith was to believe in something through reason and then continue to believe it even after it had become inconvenient to believe in it. Mormonism taught me that faith was to believe in something despite the evidence. Intervention a close friend who had always been an active Mormon found out that I liked mere Christianity. Let's call him Bob. I suppose that Bob thought my interest in Christianity to be just the opening that he needed. Bob emailed me and stated that since I was a fan of mere Christianity, that I must have some sort of testimony and belief in God, he invited me to read the Book of Mormon with him, and we could discuss it online as we read. I told him that I had just read the Book of Mormon and much of the Old Testament but that I'd be happy to read the New Testament with him. He accepted, but I was very nervous. I was honestly afraid of what I would find out. You could say that I didn't believe the Mormon church was true, but I had lingering doubts. What if it was true? I had been afraid to confront this my whole life. The New Testament. Why had I avoided this confrontation? I was afraid of Mormonism, afraid of the crushing guilt, afraid that it might be true. I viewed the New Testament as a sort of neutral arbiter in my search for truth. It was believed by Christians and the historical evidence for the places, people, and events in the New Testament was much more solid than that of the Book of Mormon. I began reading. Despite being out of the church for 25 years, I still knew church doctrine. I was a good student and the church was important to me when I was young. I recognized some things that didn't seem to match with Mormon doctrine right away. I didn't really know what I believed and I didn't want to offend my believing friend so I asked questions tentatively at first. Where did John the Baptist get his priesthood authority? Did the Jews somehow have the keys at the time of Christ? Why does Matthew call Jesus God? My daughter was in her first year of college at the time, and one Saturday I had to bring a printer to her on campus. Shortly into my six-hour round-trip drive, I received a text from Bob. It was a link to a Mormon Stories podcast where John DeLynn interviews Terrell Givens. The link didn't bring me to that specific podcast, but to the podcast generally. Naturally, I listened to the latest podcast, and then the previous, and on, and on. I learned a lot that day. I didn't know about real Mormon history. It wasn't something that was taught in seminary. Among other things, I didn't know that Joseph Smith had other wives, not to mention wives that were still married to other men. That was a big one for me. That and the history around the Book of Abraham relieved my fears about the Mormon Church being true. The Lynn's podcast also greatly aroused my curiosity about church history. My wife knew some of the embarrassing information about the church. A few times before and during our marriage, she had tentatively tried to give me some information, and as she tells it, I shut her down immediately. It's amazing, but even after being out of the church for decades, I was still conditioned not to listen to information that was critical of the church or its history. I probably wouldn't have listened to Mormon stories, but for the fact that my believing friend pointed me to it. I told Bob that I listened to lots of Mormon stories, not just Terrell Givens. He asked I asked him if he listened to any other Mormon stories himself. I wanted to get a better understanding of what he knew and where he was really with the church. He didn't answer. Instead he said instead he said there needs to be a balance between the spiritual and intellectual side of the gospel. Only then can we get the satisfaction and closeness to God that we all seek. What does that mean? So back to the New Testament discussion. Bob commented on Matthew 18 with the following, We need to take extreme measures to avoid sin. If we are an alcoholic, we should never enter a bar. If we have problems with pornography, we should get strong parental controls or get rid of the internet. So what the hell is that? That's not how you get someone into the church. Those are the kinds of messages that have kept me out of church for 25 years. It's not that I'm pro-sin, but we just started this. We're only in Matthew. To make things worse, I couldn't figure out what in Matthew he was referring to with this this comment. See, this is the chapter of the Bible, Matthew 18, that talks about leaving the ninety and nine and seeking the sheep that's gone astray, verse 12. This is the chapter where Jesus tells Peter to forgive seventy times seven times, verse 21. The chapter with the king who forgave his servant's debt, verses 23 through 28. This is a chapter in context, which is about being humble like a child, never abusing children. It's about forgiveness and compassion. This is not a compa- this is not a chapter about berating someone about avoiding sin. Matthew, Matthew 22:30 states that marriage is an earthly institution, not eternal. After pointing this out, Bob said that the doctrine and covenants clears this up. Well, Bob. If I'm trying to determine if Mormonism is true, why would I refer to a strictly Mormon source? This led to one of our long internet discussions, and I'll try to paraphrase the important points. Bob. D&C 132 states that if a couple isn't married, quote, by me or by my word, then their covenant is not enforced when they are dead. Instead, they are, quote, appointed angels in heaven. Me. But in Matthew, Jesus doesn't say that marriage doesn't exist in heaven unless they are married the right way, He flatly states that there is no marriage in heaven. Bob, today we have the fullness of the gospel. At various times in the past, we only had portions of it. Even in Christ's church, not all the ordinance that we enjoy today were around back then. Me, then it isn't accurate to call it a restoration of the church that existed when Christ walked the earth. I'm I'm uncomfortable with the idea that the full gospel existed when Joseph Smith walked the earth, but it didn't exist when Jesus walked the earth. Bob, I agree that when Christ was here, he ensured that that his entire church and all the ordinances, including eternal marriage, was established or restored. He directly contradicted himself. Mark. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals people and eats with sinners. Bob brought up the atonement. Maybe because there were sinners in this chapter? Bob. The only way that justice and mercy can exist at the same time is through the atonement, for example, the law requires that all debts be paid, but it does allow debts to be paid by someone else. Me, how does it work that sin creates a debt that must be paid? If Christ paid the debts with the atonement, then is the currency for repayment suffering? What law would require such a thing? Who is this debt owed to? Bob, I don't really understand a debt analogy. I guess I've heard it so many times I don't question it. I don't really understand the atonement, but I think it's necessary in order for us to be all that we can be. Think about that. He doesn't even really know what the atonement is, but he's sure that it, whatever it is, is necessary for something. The, the dis, this discussion of the Word of Wisdom was prompted after reading Mark chapter 7. Me. Mark 7.15 states, quote, There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things that come out of him, those are they that defile the man. Doesn't this go against the Word of Wisdom? Bob, the Word of Wisdom started out as a health code, not a commandment. But over time, it has become much stronger. Even the Bible says not to drink too much. Notice there that he didn't answer my question. Me, I've read the Word of Wisdom scripture, uh, DNC 89. It's hard to take it seriously when it says to only eat meat in times of winter or famine and to only eat fruit when it's in season. Mormons love to can fruit, and that very thing makes it possible to eat fruit out of season bob over the last 50 years the church hasn't mentioned that we should only eat fruit and vegetables in their season this is why having modern prophets and apostles is important at this point it must have become clear that our bible study wasn't leading me in the direction that bob had hoped he said that we shouldn't read the scriptures like we would a history book instead we should read them like we would a philosophy book the scriptures are about teaching us what god wants us to know to help us in this life I responded by pointing out that, in fact, I hadn't brought up any historical context, but rather was treating what we were reading as the Word of God. How should you read something? Should you read for true understanding or to confirm already existing beliefs? Something called proof texting is reading without understanding context or real meaning, but occasionally finding something that, in isolation, could be interpreted as confirming something that you already believe. Sometimes... It seems that Mormons do something I would call superproof texting, which is seeing a word that reminds them of something that their church has taught them and thinking that the whole verse or chapter is about that teaching. Superproof texting seemed to have happened with Bob in John 1 5. It reads And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, to which he commented. It is only through the light or the spirit that we can truly understand Christ's words or the Scriptures in general. Starting with a prayer helps to invite the spirit to better understand the words of Christ and the Scriptures. Is that what John 1:5 says? Not even remotely close. John 1 through 1:1 f- through 14 can be summarized as follows: 1. God is the Word and the beginning of all things. 2 and 3. God made everything. 4 and 5. God is life, and this life is the light of man. Verse 5 here is the one that he said meant that you should pray before reading the scriptures. 6, 7, and 8. John is a witness to the light. 9, 10, and 11. He made the world, but the world didn't know him. 14. God became a man and dwelt on earth. This clearly has nothing to do with inviting the Spirit. It's a very Trinitarian message. If his prayer led him to that understanding of this verse then his prayers are not working. John. John chapter 8 is famous because of the line, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. In Mormonism, this pertains to repentance or the repentance process. The woman is accused of committing adultery. Jesus doesn't ask her to confess to the proper priesthood authority. Jesus just tells her, go and sin no more. After relating this idea to Bob, he said that I misunderstood this idea of repentance. He told me that, a bishop is not required for us to repent. This was alarming. He could not be serious. Could he actually believe this, or was he bending the truth to make the Mormon church sound like something it wasn't? I responded that if what he was saying was true, then I left the one true church on the face of the earth because of a simple misunderstanding. But I didn't misunderstand anything. I responded with the LDS.org link explaining that confession to a bishop is indeed required for, quote, serious sins. At this point, I finally realized why I left the Mormon church as a young man. I didn't leave because I lacked belief. Ironically, I left because I did believe. I believed it. I followed it for a while. I was told that for serious sins I had to confess to the bishop, and I did that. But then I sinned again, I confessed again, and it was humiliating. I did not stop believing. I wish I would have. That would have been much easier. I told Bob about the miracle of forgiveness and what it says about repentance. Bob's answer: There are many contradictions in the Mormon Church. He can't. He can't answer, and he can't answer all the questions. But why does he bring up contradictions regarding Kimball's book and repentance? There are no contradictions. The church believes now what it believed then, and apparently only Bob doesn't understand that you have to confess for Mormon repentance to count. Throughout the book, Kimball talks about how difficult repentance is, how long it takes, how many things you have to do in order for it to count. This isn't forgiveness. If you have to do something in order to obtain forgiveness, then it's an exchange. I was reading in the New Testament that grace, God's forgiveness, is a free gift. Our main discussion of the atonement, the trinity, and the nature of God was prompted by John 8.23 a verse that simply has Jesus stating that he is not of this world. So I got to thinking about Jesus, and it prompted this discussion. Me. If all God's children are sent to earth to be tested, to follow the rules, prove ourselves worthy, become exalted, and eventually become a God or like a God, then how was Jesus able to shortcut this process? Or did he already go through those steps on another world? And if so, why isn't he God to another planet? According to Mormonism, he is not God, In fact, he is our oldest spiritual brother, Bob. These things are not fundamental to my salvation. Jesus has an earthly mother, but, quote, his father is literally God. The concept of God's creating other planets and having their own spirit children is not taught at all that I have seen in the church, though though it is a concept discussed as speculation outside of Sunday school. Yes, he actually said all of that. And he said that the church doesn't teach about us becoming gods. Congratulations, Bob, you've brainwashed yourself or you are now lying to me. Could he have thought that I don't know what the church teaches or used to teach? I graduated from seminary. I called him out on it and he admitted that he knew the concept well. He contradicted himself again. Bob, it's hard to differentiate real church doctrine versus ideas from church leaders. Me, then how can we know that what the church leaders are telling us today is true? Bob, no response. Some things in the Mormon religion have never made sense to me. For example, the questions about Jesus that I had for Bob. Why, did, why didn't why did he have to take the test? Why did he have to suffer? I had heard from Mormonism that Jesus had to suffer to fulfill the law of justice, as Bob had reminded me. But how is it just that one man suffers for another man's crimes? Although I seem to know more about Mormon beliefs than Bob, One thing that neither of us knew is that official Mormon doctrine is that the God of the Old Testament, who they call Jehovah, is Jesus of the New Testament. But how can that make sense for Mormons? Mormons believe that Jesus is is our older spiritual brother, who just happens to be a lot better than us. They don't believe that Jesus is the wrathful God of Moses. And how is this idea not Trinitarian in the sense that God became a man in order to save mankind like the Christians believe? But the biggest problem is this, if God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament are the same guy, then where is God? Doesn't this make the Father God completely superfluous? That would mean that God isn't referenced in the Old Testament because the guy writing the Ten Commandments and the guy talking to the prophets is Jesus, and God is scarcely or never referenced in the New Testament. Jesus created the universe and saved us from our sins. What then is God the Father's role in all this? For some reason, this evokes some more honesty and openness out of Bob, so he explained that to be a Mormon doesn't mean that you have to accept every doctrine of the church. He gave the examples that he doesn't have a testimony of the word of wisdom, what's wrong with tea after all, and that he really questions if Joseph Smith was commanded to do polygamy. I didn't know at the time if he knew the whole story about polygamy and how it started under Joseph Smith. Perhaps he did, and that's why he questioned it. He admitted to having doubts, but doesn't focus on them. He just focuses on what he believes, and he also knows that he has many blessings because of the Mormon church. I responded as follows. The issue isn't about what to focus on. It's about what is true. To be a Mormon in good standing, you may not have to believe in every doctrine, but you do have to obey. You can think the parts of the Word of Wisdom are silly, but if you start drinking tea or alcohol, there will be consequences. Then I brought up the story of John DeLynn, at the time of our conversation, it was the fall of 2014 when DeLynn was being threatened with excommunication. The threat was not because he was drinking tea or not following any of the other Mormon rules, it was because he didn't believe all the Mormon doctrines, and most especially because he was talking with people about this. And because he brought up Joseph Smith and polygamy, I ask about DNC 132. This is the Mormon scripture that supposedly authorized polygamy. If section 132 isn't true, then how can we know if any of the rest of the DNC is true? Polygamy is still part of Mormon doctrine and beliefs today. A temple-married widower can remarry in the temple, but a temple-married widow may not. The former will supposedly be in heaven with two wives. There are three very unique things about the Mormon church compared to just about any other church. They claim to have direct authority from God. They proclaim that they know that their church is true and they call their church the one and only true church. This is a very high standard, possibly an impossible standard. If these things are true, then how could any Mormon doctrine not be true? They are supposedly talking to God, after all. How could any of the current or former prophets have gotten anything wrong? Why would anything from a general authority need review and approval? Bob responded by saying that he does struggle with the usage of the word no in the Mormon church, but the church has brought happiness to his life, and Terrell Gibbons could a- answer these questions better than he could. Something else unique in Mormonism is the priesthood. Our conversations, in our conversations about this, Bob said that the priesthood power doesn't work unless you are living righteously. Taking that to its logical conclusion, I said that very few people today would have the priesthood. For example, if someone's great-great-grandfather was sinning at the time they gave their son the priesthood, then that, then that person's great-grandfather wouldn't have the priesthood, and therefore neither would they. It would only take 1 or 2% of sending priesthood holders for the non-priesthood to be spread exponentially through the generations. I'm just thinking through the implications without an overwhelming need for it to be true. To this, Bob responded that he had been doing some research, and it turns out that a priesthood holder's ability to perform ordinances remains, even if they are not living righteous. But... Their ability to confer priesthood blessings would not work if they were not righteous. Well, that's convenient. Acts. More proof texting. Acts 18.25 was used by Bob as evidence as how we, as Mormons, were taught how to recognize the Spirit. Mormons are taught that the Holy Ghost will tell you things in a still, small voice. You know that it's the Holy Ghost talking to you and not your own self-talk when you have a warm feeling about you possibly in your bosom. The scripture in Acts reads, This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. He was fervent in the Spirit, meaning he was really motivated. This doesn't say anything about having a spirit ghost giving you secret messages. Bob pointed out a Salt Lake Tribune article about the miracle of forgiveness. It stated that the book was fading away. He said that he thought I would like the article because the book was one of the reasons that caused me not to believe in Mormonism. He had it completely wrong. I explained to him that the book did nothing to hurt my testimony of the Mormon church. What the book did do was make me feel really bad. It not only made me feel unworthy, but it made me feel so low and repugnant that even going to church after that gave me a bad feeling. I've carried around the guilt and shame for years and years. I wish the book would have hurt my testimony. Bob, you shouldn't have believed that book was doctrine. Me, well, it was given to me by by my religiously observant mother, and it was written by the man who was at the time the prophet of the church. How on earth could I have not believed it was doctrine? Bob, only the scriptures and handbooks 1 and 2 are true doctrine. Everything else, including things that the prophets and apostles say in general conference, are merely, quote, good advice from wise people. Me. In our previous conversation about the Word of Wisdom, you said that we should believe what the current church leaders say on the subject, not what DNC 89 says. Bob. No response. Me. If only the scriptures and the handbooks are official doctrine, then Mormons can drink beer. DNC 89 clearly says that barley drinks, which are beer, are fine. The handbooks say to avoid substances that are harmful or habit-forming. It doesn't mention beer at all in the handbooks. So can Mormons drink beer? Bob, no response again. Romans. By the time we got to Romans, I was beginning to get the idea that Christianity and Mormonism were quite different. So many things that bothered me about the Mormon church weren't Christian and weren't true. I wasn't good enough to be a Mormon. I wasn't able to follow the rules and earn my way to heaven. But the New Testament explicitly says over and over again that we don't have to do that. Romans 11.6 address specifically the idea of works and grace, both being required for salvation. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. And if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. In other words, it can't be part grace and part works. That doesn't make sense. Grace that requires something from you isn't grace. The New Testament says that polygamy is wrong and marriage is an earthly institution. It says that it's better to be a sinner who is saved by grace than to do works to earn your own salvation. The Mormon idea is that when you follow the rules, then God accepts you. Christianity is the reverse. God first accepts you, and when you realize that you've been accepted, you desire to do good. All over the New Testament, it explains that God became a man in Christ. One of the main ideas that we've been going over throughout this conversation related to grace and works is perfection. What does Matthew 5.45 mean by... Quote, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I told Bob that Mormonism, as essentially a works-based religion, interprets that and in similar scriptures as meaning that you must be perfect in order to be saved. Many Mormons suffer a lot of guilt and shame because they, being human, cannot be even close to perfect. Bob disagreed. But the very next Sunday, I happened to be at the LDS church because of the baptism of a relative. One of the missionaries who spoke used the word perfect several times in his talk. In fact, in relating his own baptism, he said that he felt very guilty just for running in the halls of church after he was baptized, thinking that breaking such a small rule would keep him out of heaven. At the same baptism, the grandmother of the child being baptized spoke. She claimed that Jesus was able to control the weather because he had the priesthood. Talk about taking Jesus down in stature. Christians believe Christians. Christians believe Jesus is God. Mormons believe Jesus is a man. A man with priesthood power. James. The grace works discussion continued into the book of James. Bob contended that Romans emphasized grace because the audience for that text was too worried about works. Too worried about following the law of Moses. But James emphasized works. He used examples like James 2.24. Quote, Ye see then how that... By works, a man is justified and not by faith only. I pointed out a key distinction. Romans was about grace and works. It was specifically talking about what was required for salvation. James was not talking about what was required for salvation. James is talking about how your good works demonstrate that you have faith. Bob, works isn't about being saved. We have to do works for eternal progression. It's about continuing to improve ourselves so that you can become more like God. Me. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about continually improving yourself. Thessalonians. The chapter headings of the Mormon King James Bible are not part of that version of the Bible. They were written by Mormon leaders. The chapter heading of Thessalonians chapter 2 states that an apostasy is to precede the second coming. The great apostasy is central to Mormon theology because... The true church must have gone away sometime after Christ, otherwise there wouldn't be a need for Joseph Smith to establish a true church. Is there support for this idea in the second chapter of Thessalonians? Verse three says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, meaning the day that you are deceived, except that there come a falling away first, clearly meaning a falling away of the event of the individual who is deceived. The chapter does not say what the chapter heading said that it would say. Corinthians Mormons like to point to Corinthians fifteen twenty nine as an endorsement of their practice of baptism for the dead because it contains the phrase "baptized for the dead. It states that if the dead don't rise, then why be baptized or converted? In other words, it's saying why be baptized if there's no afterlife if there's no afterlife? Because if there's no afterlife then you're merely being baptized for death and not for life. Timothy. The chapter heading of 1 Timothy chapter 1 states, Christ came to save repentant sinners. Nowhere in the chapter does it say, say that. It says that Christ came to save sinners. Repentance isn't mentioned at all in the chapter. The chapter heading of 1 Timothy chapter 2 states that women should dress modestly. Verse 9 describes immodest as, quote, braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Mormons have a unique way of understanding the word modest. They use it to mean that women shouldn't show too much skin, but in the Bible and elsewhere, it means not to show off with fancy clothes or wealth. The chapter heading to 1 Timothy chapter 5 states that saints are to care for their worthy poor. The chapter talks a lot about caring for the poor and widows, but it says nothing about the poor having to be worthy in order to get help. Don't tell me that Mormonism isn't a works-based religion. Repentant sinners? Worthy poor? 2 Timothy 3.36 reads, God was manifest in the flesh. Bob admitted that it sounded Trinitarian, but he said that it was talking about Christ coming to earth and becoming flesh. When I asked why the Bible would refer to Christ with the word God, if they are separate beings, I got no answer. Peter. 2 Peter 1.16 6, states that the apostles were eyewitnesses to Christ. Bob, apostles today are also a special witness of Christ and that they testify to the divinity of Christ, me. But the original apostles were eyewitnesses. In this verse, the Bible uses the word eyewitness. The apostles in the Bible physically saw Christ perform miracles, saw him die, and three days later, later saw him alive. What does it mean to be a special witness? Bob, no answer revelation in response to revelation 1 8 quote God is the Alpha and Omega Bob said that it meant that God is eternal and that he is everything but then he said that in Revelation 2 8 which says that Jesus is the first and the last means that Jesus is eternal and that he is everything clearly if God and Jesus are separate beings they can't both be everything in this discussion Bob asked how we could have existed forever if our spirits were born, and Christ is the firstborn spirit. I explained to him that Mormons believe that we have always existed as intelligences, and that we were born as spirits, and our intelligences were placed into those spirits. It doesn't make any sense, but many crazy and contradictory things have been said by Mormons in high offices over the years, and all those things had to be reconciled somehow, and it came out as a mess in the end. Bob Why can't God just give us evidence to prove everything about him? Me. Maybe there is evidence, just not evidence for the version of God that Mormons believe in. The Book of Mormon We didn't have much to say about the book of Revelations. It's a bit confusing, but we finished reading and discussing the New Testament. Bob admitted that he got more out of this scripture study than any other, and that my challenging statements and questions had caused him to examine his beliefs more closely. I also said I was very satisfied with the results of the reading and discussion, and that I got a lot out of it. I suppose that was the opening Bob needed. He invited me to read another quote scripture with him. I guess that the goal always was to get me to read the magical Book of Mormon. Me, I don't consider the Book of Mormon to be scripture. Bob, why do you consider the Old and New Testaments to be scripture? Me, the people in the Bible existed, at least from the days of David and Solomon, In addition, no text, the Bible, and no person, Jesus, has affected history nearly as profoundly. The Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, and Moroni aren't even close. Bob, the Book of Mormon has a similar message as the Bible, but the writing is different because the Bible underwent, quote, centuries of scholars editing the text along the way. And since the Book of Mormon has only been around for 200 years, It's probably safe to assume that today its impact is like the Bible's impact 200 years after Jesus. Me. The remarkable, or perhaps predictable, thing about the Book of Mormon isn't that its style of writing is different from the King James Bible. It's that it's so similar. People who don't believe in Joseph Smith understand why. It's because Joseph, in writing the Book of Mormon, tried to make it sound like Scripture. The Bible hasn't been edited over centuries. Meaning meaning may have been altered or changed when it was translated from one language to another, but there was no attempt during the centuries to change the meaning. And if there was, then when the scholars got together to produce a more accurate Bible, as they did in the 16th century with the King James and during the 20th century with the NIV, they gathered as many of the oldest manuscripts and compared them in order to ensure accuracy. Bob didn't even know what the Dead Sea Scrolls were. He only knew that the Bible is inaccurate Mormon propaganda on the subject. The Bible is accurate in a similar similar way that Bitcoin accounts are accurate. The more copies that exist, the more you can be sure that a copy that agrees with 99.9% of the other copies is an accurate copy. His comment about Christianity 200 years after its founding versus Mormonism 200 years after its founding made me curious, so I did some research. And I found that in 200 AD, there were approximately 5 million Christians out of a world population of 190 million. 2.63%. 2.63%. Today, almost 200 years after its founding, there are approximately 15 million Mormons out of a world population of 7.5 02 .02%. Therefore, 200 years after their respective founding, Christianity had proportionally 13 times as many followers as Mormonism. He responded that it wasn't surprising because Jesus was better at bringing people into the fold than Joseph. I agree, and today Jesus Jesus is still better at bringing people into his church than Joseph is at bringing them into Joseph's church. Bob, Mormonism is a version of Christianity, but that has, quote, more light and knowledge because of the Book of Mormon. The other versions of Christianity don't agree on everything, but if they could all understand the Book of Mormon, then all of Christianity could be brought together. Mere Christianity. I agreed to read the Book of Mormon with him, but he understood where I stood on it now. But, with all this Christian Mormon talk, I thought that it would be best if we read Mere Christianity first. After all, that book began this one-and-a-half-year conversation of ours. In the preface to Mere Christianity, Lewis analogizes different Christian sects as rooms in a hall, and you shouldn't linger in the hall for too long, deciding which room is best for you, but you should pick a room. Bob asked me if I thought I was lingering in the hall lingering in the hall, and if so, why I didn't follow the advice to pick a room. I agreed with him. I explained that since I was so hurt by Mormonism, I was afraid of the truth, afraid that Mormonism might be true. Also, I'm skeptical of everything, including religion and science. And skeptics like me tend to stay in the hall. I thanked him for pushing me past my fears into a deep analysis of Mormonism. Then, in an Nice way. I accused him of not choosing a room in the hall himself, but rather having the room chosen for him because of the family he was born into. I reminded him that he told me he didn't have a full testimony of the truth of Mormonism until after he was on his mission. His mission occurred after he had made huge commitments, promises, and even oaths in the temple. He didn't like me saying this, but he didn't really deny it either. He curiously brought up the fact that I made promises when I was baptized at 8 years old. Finally, he asserted that the church as an institution is important because it reminds him constantly of things he should be doing better. With that, he basically admitted that the Mormon church was important to him because it helped him feel guilty all the time. He simply doesn't understand that the Mormon church, unlike other churches, is steeped in guilt and shame. He doesn't understand this because the Mormon church is all he knows. Mere Christianity is replete with opportunities for Mormons and Christians to talk about many interesting religious topics. The first few chapters got us talking about the problem of evil, whether we existed before this life, the pre-existence, and the nature of angels, are the humans in spirit form or something else? But mostly, mere Christianity is the account of what Christianity is. C.S. Lewis describes the sin of Satan as putting himself first. Satan put into our heads the idea that we could be like gods, Mormons literally do believe that they not only can be like gods, but they they can be a god. Many will deny this, but it is is exactly what I was taught when I was a Mormon. Me. Mormons can't think of themselves as Christian if their main goal, the final goal on their eternal progression path, is the very sin that made Satan the devil. Self-exaltation, Mormon value, is the very opposite of Christianity. Thinking you can become a god or even like a god is the biggest sin of all, and that's exactly what Mormons believe. Bob, it's personal progression, not becoming a god or like god. There are more similarities than differences between Mormonism and Christianity. Me, Mormons and Christians fundamentally differ on the following. Why are we here, and where are we going after this life? What is repentance, and how does it work? The atonement epistemology, how do we know what is true, the nature of God, salvation, is it a free gift or something you earn by your good works, the universe, the trinity, Christ organized a church that went into apostasy, men have an authority from God, marriage, ordinances, is it just baptism and communion or something more, are they symbolic or real, to my astonishment he said that he didn't see much different between Mormonism and Christianity in these topics, this gave me the opportunity to dive into the details on these topics. The Purpose of Life Christian, we come into existence when we are born. God created us so that he could have creatures that he could love and that could love also love him. Because love is only real if it is freely chosen, God gave these creatures free will. With this free will comes risk, the risk that they will not love him or desire to be with him. This free will also opened the possibility of evil into the world. The desire to be with God is expressed by the creature giving up himself and submitting himself to God. These creatures with the free will will find this almost impossible because they love themselves so intently. God became a man and suffered and submitted himself so that he could help his creatures do the same, suffer and submit. Me, LDS view. We have always existed as intelligences. Heavenly Father, and I assume his wife, had spirit children, and our intelligences were put into these spirits. In order for us to progress, we had to come to earth, obtain bodies, lose our memories, and be tested. The test includes being righteous or moral, and finding the right church among thousands. Certain physical acts, ordinances, are also required to be done to pass this test. No one other than the firstborn spirit is able to pass it. If we get less than 100% on this test, there is a price that must be paid to make it possible for more than one person to pass the te- this test the one person who could pass the test Jesus volunteered to pay the price for the others that debt was paid through suffering there's an important caveat to this debt payment it only counts if we quote do all that we can do and repent of the rest depending on how good you do on the test there are several different degrees of glories that you will be awarded bob lds view we lived with our heavenly father before this earth we were spirits God desired that we grow to the greatest potential we had. To do this, he created a plan. That plan involved coming to this earth and having a body. In order for us to grow, God had had to allow us to choose both good and evil. Another plan was presented that would not allow choosing good and evil. It only allowed good, denying us free will. This would avoid all the pain and suffering we see today, but would also not allow us to grow to the potential that God saw in us. We need to be able to freely choose good and good, and choose to love God. The only begotten Son of God the Father, who is Jesus Christ, volunteered to come to earth and atone for our sins. So whether it's my description or Bob's description of the LDS view, the differences are fundamental. It's our purpose is our purpose to surrender and love, or to eternally progress? Are we on this earth to be tested? Does our performance on the test place us in an eternal kingdom? He said that everything that I put into the into the LDS description but that he left out is speculation and not official doctrine. The Nature of God Christian View. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, outside of time, creator of everything, and a creature of spirit. He became a man in order to be able to save mankind. He is the only God. He is neither male nor female because his nature is higher than that. He cannot be defined or limited by the idea of sex or gender. He became a man when his Jesus side came to earth, but he could just as easily been human as a woman. God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are three personas of the same being. They are both separate persons and at the same time one entity. The devil is a fallen angel. Angels are different beings from humans. LDS View God was once a man who became a god through righteousness and ordinances. He must be one of many gods because if he was once a man, then presumably... Some others at the place where he was a man were also good enough to progress to Godhood. He is subject to universal laws above him. He has a male body. God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are three distinct people. God and Jesus have bodies, but the Holy Ghost does not. The devil is a human who came to earth but didn't get a body. He is our brother and the brother of Jesus. I was told that I may have ran across teachers who taught Mormonism beyond what the church officially endorses. He gave again the example of the idea that God was once a man and that we could one day become gods ourselves. He said that wasn't official because President Hinckley was asked about it in an interview and he basically denied it. He also said that they don't talk about it in general conference. I don't know what is taught in Mormon seminary today, but when I attended, they spent days and weeks going over the idea that we can become gods if we do everything right. The idea that I had a rogue teacher who is making up doctrine and leading people astray is just ridiculous. And it's insulting to say that since President Hinckley denied it, that it's not true. The fact that he denied it is the real problem. Here we have a Mormon prophet going on national television and deceiving the public about what his religion believes. The idea of God being a man and us becoming gods is right on LDS.org today in the Gospel Principles Manual, Chapter 47. Of course that isn't this isn't taught or emphasized recently. If it were true, then it would mean that Mormons believe in multiple gods. The book of Abraham repeatedly refers to multiple gods. I made the point that if I was taught an incorrect version of Mormonism and then chose to leave that Mormonism, then I didn't do anything wrong, even if real Mormonism is true. What he was saying about what Mormons can really believe is itself condemning to a church that claims to be the one true church on earth. If we know now that so much of Mormon doctrine that was taught in the past was wrong, then how do we know that what is being taught now is true? The universe. Christian. From outside of space and time, God created space and time and everything that entails. LDS. The universe has always existed and it has always had planets with people on them and each planet had its own God. Some of the people on those planets were good enough to become gods of other people and on and on. There is no reality outside of space, time, and the physical universe. Bob attempted to claim that Mormons don't have a theological understanding of the universe. I reminded him of the book of Abraham, which states that God lives close to a particular star. That places God within space and time, which is not at all what Christians believe. Additionally, an endless succession of gods and planets would make time infinite. But we now know that time and the universe had a beginning, the Big Bang. Authority from God, priesthood, and church organization. Christian View God came to earth in the form of Jesus. He had a message about who he was and how humanity could be saved from their sin. The apostles were eyewitnesses to him and his message. When they died, there were no more apostles. There was no official church organization that would always have apostles, a prophet, and official positions like bishop and primary president. The church included all those who believed in Christ and his message. Salvation is between you and God. LDS view. Christ organized a church with specific offices and a structure. Christ gave the apostles authority from God. The church that Jesus organized had the same structure as the Mormon church today. It had apostles, high priests, bishops, elders, priests, teachers, and deacons. But nothing of this is mentioned in the Bible or Book of Mormon. The church quickly went into apostasy. Ordinances. Christian view. Baptism and Holy Communion are symbolic acts to show that you believe in Jesus. They are not required. LDS view. Baptism, taking the sacrament, tithing, not eating or drinking the wrong things, doing specific acts in a specific building, and lots of other things are required in order to get into heaven. Bob argued that Mormons do have a lot of rules, but these rules shouldn't be thought of as a checklist of things you have to do to get into heaven. Instead, they should be thought of as things we need to do to avoid danger and the bad things of this world you can think of it however you want but for mormons this is a minimum list of what you must do to get to heaven baptism sustain church leaders pay a full tithe keep the word of wisdom wear garments Melchizedek priesthood for men temple endowment temple marriage part three of mere christianity delved deeper into christian theology we found ourselves in much agreement on the cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Epistemology. How do we know what is true? Christian view. History, logic, and eyewitness, eyewitness testimony demonstrate that Christianity is true. Faith is continuing to believe something that you had previously believed because of reason and evidence, even when it becomes convenient not to believe in it. LDS view. Read the Book of Mormon, pray and ask God if what you read is true. If you get a feeling then that is confirmation that everything you read is true, and what the Mormon Church currently teaches is true. When I was growing up, I understood faith as this. I'm told something is true, and I believe it. Maybe I also pray about it and get a feeling that confirms that it's true. I assume that other religions understood faith the same way. They may believe different things, but since it was religion, they believed it through faith. Faith understood as believing in it without any evidence. I told him that when he continually falls back on this idea that the Mormon Church makes him a better person when faced with inconsistencies in the theology or problems in Mormon history, that it seems like he's saying that truth doesn't matter. Let him ask of God. Possibly being inspired after church, Bob reminded me of a well-known scripture among Mormons, James 1, 5, and 6. If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. After a little research, I was able to remove my Mormon filter regarding, regarding the scripture. It means, actually, just what it says. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it, for wisdom. And he will give you wisdom li- liberally. He'll give you a lot of wisdom. It doesn't mean that God will give you answers to any random question that you have. It certainly doesn't mean that God will tell you that the Mormon church is true if you ask him that specific question. I pointed out what the scripture says and means. I again got no response. Heaven. Bob may not have been a typical Mormon when he started, but this discussion was having a big effect on his beliefs, pushing him even more outside of the Mormon mainstream. Regarding heaven and salvation, he stated... I don't believe in a heaven that is reserved for those that check certain boxes and obey rules. He also said, quote, I think there will be many Mormons that have checked all the ordinance boxes and been to church each sun- Sunday that will be farther away from heaven than many that have never known the Mormon church but allowed Christ into their lives to help change who they are and become more like what Christ taught we should become, unquote. That's not what Mormons believe. So I asked the big question, the question around which this entire multi-year discussion centered. Is there any reason to be a Mormon? I asked because he just said that some Mormons will not go to heaven and some non-Mormons will go to heaven. Bob's answer? Certain truths that have changed over time have been further clarified through Revelation. That was his answer. That is a really bad answer. He is saying that you need to be a Mormon only to know these truths that come from the Mormon prophets. But previously, he said you can't trust the prophets. It, doesn't matter, it does not matter which belief system is right. Mormonism or Christianity can't both be right because they are different. They could both be wrong, or one of them could be right. And there are legitimate reasons not to believe in the Mormon story. I also pointed out that in order to discern the veracity of any claim, you have to avail yourself of any and all information without prejudging it. Mormons prejudge anything that goes against their narrative as anti-Mormon and basically tell their members that it's a sin to learn about it. Joseph Smith is the key to the whole Mormon edifice, and he did a lot of bad things, things that the Mormon leadership denied for years. Only very recently is the Mormon Church admitting this, because the availability of information on the internet has forced them to. In the past, the Mormon Church has excommunicated people for saying the very things that they are now saying. I felt the discussion was getting a little tense, so I decided to get personal. So the discussion could be more congenial. I admitted that I left the Mormon church because of the shame and guilt. I honestly didn't think that I could ever be good enough to be a Mormon. And as an adult, every time I tried to go back, the shame and guilt came back, so I gave up. But after reading the New Testament and subsequent study and research, it's revealed that Christianity has something entirely different and quite the opposite of Mormonism in fundamental ways. There is much more evidence for Christianity, and it is not built on guilt and shame. Back to church? Then he surprised me by inviting me to church. I didn't think that the discussion was going in this direction at all. But to be fair, he said that I should go to an LDS church or a Christian church, and that either one would be better than none. I thought about why I had not tried a Christian church in the past, and realized that one of the reasons was that I thought my parents would be more disappointed In me going to a Christian church than not going to church at all. Then we started on the Book of Mormon just as he had originally planned. I was surprised that he even still wanted to do do this after everything. After all the questions that he could not answer. After all the theological and historical problems of Mormonism. He must have thought that the magical words of the Golden Bible could change anyone's mind. We only got through a few books of the Book of Mormon. After reading the New Testament so closely and doing a lot of related study, the Book of Mormon just seemed terrible in comparison. By the time we got to Jacob, he said, Maybe we should stop reading the Book of Mormon together. I'm not sure it is doing any of us any good. I think it was doing him some good, but also making him uncomfortable, like the whole two-year conversation.
0: It did me a hell of a lot of good. So there you go. Thank you very much, Brian for your essay now if you as our listener want to go and vote for this essay go to our website find this episode click on the voting link and leave your feedback and if you haven't already joined us on patreon please consider signing up and supporting infants on thrones for as little as one dollar per episode capped at whatever budget you want to give yourself for the month your generosity helps keep this podcast alive and growing so thank you and tune in tomorrow for another listener essay Pretty bird. Pretty bird. Hey, this is Billy in 4C from Rhode Island. Yes, that's right. The blind kid from Dumb and Dumber, and now Dumb and Dumber 2. 2. Yes, a pseudo-celebrity Mormon. Infants on Thrones has helped me come to grips with the tragedy that I've seen. Well, heard about at least, when learning that the thing that mattered most to me ended up being dead all along. I mean, Petey didn't even have a head. If you heart the show as much as I do, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Write a short review, and oh my heck, why not post about it on the social media? Unless you're still stuck in the Relief Society closet about your faith transition stuff like I am. And always remember, I just thought he was real quiet. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Game Prince of Thrones.